thanking God for bad things. Some would say, oh, wow, this is, that's, that's an impossibility. A young couple gives birth to a long-awaited child, and together they thank God in prayer for the healthy new baby that now adorns their home and lightens the new nursery. A hard-working husband is up for promotion at his place of employment, but there are two others also being considered for the same position. The boss promises to make his decision by November 20th. That day comes and goes, and this Christian husband is informed that he has the promotion. There is celebration and thanksgiving in his home that night with wife and family. It's a cold, wintry day. The roads are icy. The sky is full of snow, and the winds are whipping into a blizzard-like condition. Whiteouts are everywhere. Suddenly, the car goes out of control, skids across the medium of the highway, nearly missing oncoming traffic, and lands in the ditch, perspiring from fear. Shaken by the accident, the young man inside nonetheless collects his composure enough to thank God for his watch care over him and for sparing his life. Now, what do all of these scenarios have in common with regard to thanksgiving? Is it not that the prayers of all involve giving thanks for what is perceived as good things which have come into their lives at the hand of God. A new baby, promotion and a pay raise at work, a near-death accident on the highway. What would be the case, however, if the scenarios were changed? Instead of a New baby, a barren couple. Instead of a promotion at work, the loss of your job, the loss of your income. Instead of a near brush with death on the highway, the actual loss of life. Could we see God's hand in these latter developments as well as the former? Would we be as quick to thank God for the trials as well as for the joys? The scripture before us today is 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 16. And it exhorts us with a trilogy of seemingly impossible commands. Here they are. Be joyful always. Always, Lord? Always. Pray continually. Really? Continually? Give thanks in all circumstances. All circumstances? For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Well, since it's Thanksgiving Sunday, I want to concentrate on this latter impossible command. Give thanks in all circumstances. Yes, 
even for bad things. So how do we thank God for bad things? Well, if you look at your bulletin outline, you will notice it is possible to thank God for bad things and to mean it. And we have many examples of this in the Bible. When Satan attacked Job by God's permission, he lost all of his livestock, he lost all of his servants, he lost all of his wealth, and most horrendously, all of his ten adult children in a day. It's hard to read that and not to well up with tears. If you have any sympathy at all for hurting people, this has got to be disturbing. And to make matters worse, there was absolutely, can I say it this way, no breather room between the disasters. If you read the context, as soon as one servant came running to report an incident, another would be on the heels of that one with more bad news. It was like, it was like pouring water on a drowning man. And the coup de grace was the news of his sons and daughters killed by the collapse of the older brother's house in which they were all gathered for feasting. At this, Job fell to the ground in worship and said, these are his words, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, May the name of the Lord be praised. God's commentary. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Job 1, verse 21 and 22. This is all the more remarkable when we listen to God's evaluation of Job in the discourse with Satan. God said, Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on the earth. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Chapter 1, verse 8. Would to God that each of us had a similar accolade from God posted on our account. What this means, of course, is that we cannot, we cannot attribute what happened to Job to his being a wicked man. That's, that, that, that's, we cannot say God was punishing him. We cannot say he deserved the bad things that befell him. This is what we think. We think bad things happen to bad people. They deserve it. But Job's problem becomes an enigma to us because in his case, there's no cause and effect. Bad things happen to one whom God called blameless and upright. Did not God unwittingly, or Job rather, unwittingly display that righteousness in his worship of God and his resignation to the will of God, come what may. 
The text does not say that he thanked God for what happened, but that he worshipped. Well, worship, if it is anything, is bowing to the will of God, not in a grin and bear attitude, but in gratitude for who he is and what he has done. And there's a lot of that in the book of Job. What I'm saying here is that there is a connection between praising God and thanking God. At the laying of the foundation of the Zerubbabel's temple, we read, with praise and thanksgiving they sang to the Lord. His good, his love to Israel endures forever. Ezra 3 verse 11, that was the theme of our responsive reading this morning from the Psalms as well. Or again, Psalm 106, verse 1 and 2. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Who can proclaim the mighty acts of the Lord or fully declare his praise? You know, to thank the Lord and to praise the Lord are are practically synonymous. Praise issues from a heart that's filled with gratitude. Job said of the Lord at the loss of his children, The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Chapter 1, verse 21. Could you thank the Lord? Could you? Could you indeed praise the Lord for taking all of your children in one bold, sweeping moment of time? I think about that. And I think how paltry would be my response. I'd be saying things, what are you up to? Why'd you do this? What have I ever done to deserve this? That's the way we think. So we have a man here, Job, who knew how to thank God in all circumstances. Second, consider the next, King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, this guy's interesting because he's not a believer. He is that one king who bragged about the Babylon he built, for he says, for his own glory... And his own majesty. You can just see him beating his chest saying, I did this, I did this, I did this. How great I am, how great I am. God caused him to have a dream which he could not interpret. In fact, none of his astrologers and wise men and enchanters, none of them could interpret the dream except Daniel. Because here was the kicker. They had to tell the dream and then interpret. They couldn't just say, well, you tell us the dream and then we'll give you an interpretation. No, he knew that they could fake the interpretation. So No, he said, you tell me the dream and give me the interpretation. And if you don't, off with your heads. Well, they said to the king, you know, king, (laughs) no king in all of the earth has ever asked this of his wise men. You're asking the impossible. 
But Daniel was summoned, and he gave its meaning. Here it is. This is the interpretation, says Daniel. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle, be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times, a time stands for a year, seven years will pass by until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Daniel 4. Verse 24 and following. Well, it happened as predicted. Verse 33 states that he was driven from men. I'm reading scripture. His hair grew like the feathers of an eagle. His nails like the claws of a bird. And Nebuchadnezzar lived that way like a brute beast of the field for a long time, seven years. In the dream, God's messenger predicted, let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal until seven times pass over him. Chapter 4, verse 16. Does that tell you something? It tells you that evolution isn't right. We don't involve into this higher being that has this intelligence No, if you're animal, you have an animal mind. And if you're created in the image of God as man was, you have a mind that relates to God. That was taken away from Nebuchadnezzar, and he was given the mind of a beast. Now here, his confession. I'm reading scripture. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity, here it is, his mind, my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High, I honored and glorified him who lives forever. Daniel 4, verse 34. And three verses later we read the content of his praise. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, give praise and exalt And glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. Wait a minute. (laughs) Wait just a minute here now. Nebuchadnezzar has just spent seven years as a wild animal with a peanut brain grazing on the metals like cattle unrecognizable as a human being in his long matted hair and his claw-like nails. And here he is praising God for all this bad misfortune which God sent upon him. What could Nebuchadnezzar possibly be thinking? He says he has regained his sanity, but this surely looks insane to be glorifying God for all his heartache and all of his trouble. Here is his thinking. It's his words, not mine. I glorify the king of heaven because, here it is, because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And here it is. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Whoa. 
Nebuchadnezzar recognized that God had done him good by sending heartache and humiliation his way. He had reduced him from the damning, rescued him from the damning sin of inordinate pride. He convinced Nebuchadnezzar that there is room in the universe for but one God, and you, Nebuchadnezzar, are not him. He could thank God for the bad things in his life. Now that a pagan king of Babylon would come to these conclusions is a rebuke to us for all those times when we whine and fuss with God over the adversity that he sends into our lives. And yes, these things don't just happen in our lives. God sends them into our lives. For our third example, consider the Apostle Paul. His testimony to the Corinthian church cataloged his life as an apostle of Jesus and it compared it with that of the false teachers who were attempting to distort the gospel at Corinth. Here's his testimony. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. They wouldn't give you 40 lashes. They would give you 39. 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in dangers from bandits, in danger... From my own countrymen, I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I've been cold and naked. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23 and following. Now this long list of ill treatment might be attributed by some to Paul's enemies, or at least enemies of the gospel. Some might say that being shipwrecked could happen to anyone in those dangerous days of sailing. But Paul praises God for these things. And in particular, that in his own weakness, God promised, here it is, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8. In the context, God had sent a messenger of Satan to be a thorn in Paul's flesh to keep him from becoming conceited because of the many wonderful revelations that he was privy to as God's apostle. First Corinthians 4 verse 9 Paul wrote. It seems to me. That God has put us apostles on display. At the end of the procession. Like men. Condemned to die. In the arena. He's talking about the Roman Colosseum. We have been made a spectacle. To the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ. We are weak. We are dishonored. To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. 
And we are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We have become the scum of the earth and the refuse of the world. What's he saying? Well, Paul is saying that God has placed him and the other apostles in this path. They are living out what God has sent their way. Now, this is a lot of heartache to bear to be an apostle, an ambassador of Jesus Christ. Oh, and incidentally, every apostle, with the exception of John the apostle, died a martyr's death. And some of those deaths were very, very gruesome. I can't even think how wicked men could think up Wicked ways to kill somebody. But they did. It's enough to make any man bitter with his lot in life. But this is Paul's evaluation. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. Who has given me strength. That he considered me faithful. And appointed me to to this service. I was shown mercy. Speaking of his salvation. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. Along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible. The only God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 1 Timothy 1 verse 12 and following. Wow. he, he, He breaks into doxology. As he contemplates his life as an apostle and all the hardships. What I'm saying, brethren, that it is possible to thank God for bad things in your life. And to mean it. To mean it. Because we're seeing some things as believers. We're seeing some things in the bad things that the world cannot see. Now secondly, what is the rationale behind thanking God for bad things? Are we Looney Tunes? Have we lost it? What? You know. Well, number one, here's one of the rationales. God is in sovereign control of all of the events which come into your life, including the bad things. There's a rationale that will act as a concrete pillar for you. There are not two deities at work in the universe. Satan the evil deity and God the good deity. If you think in this dualistic way you will get no comfort or understanding from adversity. God himself gives this testimony. There is no God, he says, beside me. I put to death. I bring to life. I wound. And I heal. And no one can deliver out of my hand. Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. What's he saying? He's saying God is in control of the adversity, wounding, as well as the blessing, healing. 
To King Cyrus of Persia, whom God used to subdue nations, he said, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. I am the Lord, there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. Isaiah 45, verse 4 through 6. And he repeats that in verse 14 and verse 18 and so on down through the text. He is telling Cyrus in no uncertain terms that Cyrus is a king of God's own appointment. Mentioned in verse 1. He's not a God. Cyrus is not a God. And as such, he can just as easily be removed from his place of honor. And in context, God demonstrates to Cyrus just how God has evidenced his deity and his sovereignty over Cyrus' kingdom. We should thank God, brethren, for adversity because he is behind it in one form or another. Try, I'm saying it this way, try to get behind your trouble. Try to get behind it and see the hand of God in it. It's the first rationale to being thankful. This is God doing this. This is God in my life. Secondly, recognize, and this is going to come as a great shock to most people, Recognize that God has a bigger plan in mind than your happiness. <laughs> All that God does is for his own glory and his own honor. Not in an egotistical way. God is not egotistical. God is God. And he's saying, you know, I'm numero uno in the universe and there's no other. And he's also saying to us, you are not the be-all and end-all of what God does. Shock, shock. In fact, you're not the end at all. You and I are simply the means to the end. What's the end? The end is God's glory. How am I the means? By becoming whatever God wills and accomplishing his plan with fidelity and trust. We read this morning from Paul's own lips the heartache, the pain, the suffering he had to endure as an apostle of Jesus Christ. So his boasting was not in how strong a Christian he was, but on how weak a Christian he was. <laughs> that blows our mind. What is the point? Jesus gave him this principle. Speaking to Paul, he says, My power is made perfect in weakness. That's what this is about. Listen to Paul's response. Therefore, I will boast all the more. Notice his gladness. I will boast all the more. Gladly about my weaknesses. So that Christ's power may rest on me. This is why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, when I'm weak, 
then I am strong. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9 following. He's strong because God is there when his weakness is evident. Let's sort this out, the logic of it. The principle of us being the means, not the end of what God does, indicates that you, you and I are not the main player in the scenario. In fact, according to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27 and following, God chooses to call and use people who are, here it is, foolish, that is by the world's standards, weak, I'm using the Bible verses that are there in that, in that text, lowly, despised, people who are not, that is, they are nobodies as opposed to the somebodies of society. Why does God do this? Did, did, did we read that right? Weak, lowly, despised people who are not? Why does God do this? Two reasons. And they're given in the text. Chapter 1, verse 29 of 1 Corinthians 1. So that no one may boast before him. And the second reason, so that God gets the glory and all that you and I become and all the right things we do. In other words, God takes people who are foolish, weak, lowly, and not influential in society, and he works his will and power through them so that he gets the glory. We then become the pages of the Bible the people of the world see and read. They know nothing of the power of God in their lives, but they get to see it in your life. Power over such things as illness and Heartache and tragedy and pain and suffering and poverty and even death. We are not superhumans in these things, but we are products of God's grace and God's power. Paul puts it this way, God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure, knowledge and light, in jars of clay. Not fine Lennox crystal, but jars of clay. Why? To show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. No patting oneself on the back as the world does all the time. For this to happen will mean that everything that comes into your life will not be peaches and cream. God gives the mo gets the most glory rather from how you handle adversity in God-honoring ways. You know, it was the same with our Lord. Just hours before his crucifixion and in reference to his crucifixion, Jesus prayed these words, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. 
Now this is eternal life, that they, the people of earth, may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Notice the principle there. I brought you glory. How did I bring you glory? By doing what you gave me to do. John 17, verse 1 and 5. In verse 11, he says, I will remain in the world no longer. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they, my disciples, may have the full measure of my joy within them. If my disciples can just, if they can just grasp the idea that you've assigned them a task to do, and if they do it, they're bringing glory to God. If they could get that into their heads, their joy would be full. What is this? It's Jesus wanting his disciples to see that he goes to the cross gladly because his sacrifice will mean salvation for sinners and glory for God the Father. He wants them to experience his joy in this. Yes, that sounds odd, but Hebrews 12 verse 2 reads this way. Fix your eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I can put it this way. Jesus was pleased to be the means to the end, the instrument by which God would be glorified as the Savior of sinners. Now, if you and I can grasp the principle that we are but vessels for the master's use, we will find a joy in adversity and we will be thankful to be empowered by God to bring him the glory that is due his name. That brings us then to the second major point of our study, the benefits of a thankful heart with regard to adversity. Now, we've already kind of talked about one. One of them, the chief benefit, is that God's going to be glorified. But I'm thinking, <clears throat> thinking now here, in this section, more personally. Well, number one, thankful hearts have joy. They have joy. How can that be? Well, we normally think of trouble as that which destroys our joy. We're moved out of our comfort zone and the stress tends to frazzle our nerves and makes us anxious. You have to consider what I am saying in light of everything else that we've learned this morning and not the least of which that God is sovereign over all of the events in your life, be they good or bad. But there's another dimension here and it is this. God works to bring good results out of bad experiences. So, sin's bad into your life, but that's not the end of the story. And there is none other like him that does this. The classic text is Romans 8, verse 28. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. In all things God works for the good. 
It's important to note what Paul does not say here. He does not say God is trying, he's really trying to work out all things for the good of those who love him, but sometimes things just get out of his control. And that's not what Paul says. He's not trying to work all things out. He does it. He does not say, God does this for every person on earth. No. Only for those who love him. He does not say that God does this for everyone who professes to love him but only for those who have been called according to his purpose, those to whom God himself has a vested interest. Other scriptures say similar things. Philippians 2, verse 13. It is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. God has a good purpose. In the bad things which come your way. And his purpose will not be frustrated. Paul in prison wrote to the church at Philippi saying. Now I want you to know brothers. That what has happened to me. Has really served to advance the gospel. As a result. It has become clear throughout the whole palace guard. And to everyone else. That I am in chains for Christ. That is, he had been arrested because he was preaching Jesus Christ and the gospel. He goes on. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously, more fearlessly. Philippians 1, verse 12 through 14. Wow. (laughs) What normally makes people... cower in fear and hide and try not to be discovered lest they be persecuted has had the opposite effect because of Paul's chains. He's chained, yes, he's in a Roman prison, but as he told Timothy, and here it is, I'm reading his words, God's word is not chained. 2 Timothy 2 verse 9. Because of that, the brethren were emboldened to speak. Then too, if God is in all the events and is working them for our good, would not the other imperative in our verse be an outgrowth? 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16, be joyful always. Point being, because even from the bad things, God is bringing about good. I think we can be joyful that God's ultimate purposes are never nullified by the evil of our world. He just plows ahead with his agenda, rolling over all the opposition by the powers of this dark world, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Ephesians 6 verse 12. Psalm 2 says he sits enthroned in the heavens and he laughs, he laughs at those who conspire against him. You need to get a grip, brethren. Satanic powers and evil men do not run this world. Our God runs this world. If you get that in your heart, you'll be able to be joyful in adversity. 
Secondly, second benefit, thankful hearts are contented hearts. This follows from being at peace with what's happening. Lose your earthly belongings? It's okay. Because we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing of it out. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. 1 Timothy 5 verse 7. Every time Apple introduces a new iPhone, people line up on the sidewalks in front of the Apple store. They'll even camp on the streets all night. Cold, blizzard, snow, doesn't make any difference. Why? They want the latest and the greatest technology in a phone that still only allows them to talk to other human beings. But you and I have the glorious position to talk to God and to know that we're heard. We're heard. Still living in a rental property and your dream of owning your own home seems more remote than ever? You're blessed. You are. It's okay because like Abraham and Sarah who preferred tents to mansions which they could have afforded, we too are looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Hebrews 12 verse 10. Every other city is destined to melt away in the fervent heat of the coming fire of judgment. You need to keep that in perspective. Are you sick in body? Or if not sickness, you're sensing that some of your abilities are slipping away? Your physical strength? Mm, guilty. <laughs> That's me. Mental acuity? Your memory? Old age is setting in? Maybe even death? It's okay. Because as with Paul, we can say, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. The principle being here that our weakness is an opportunity for God's power as we've been studying. Our dying is an opportunity for God to display his resurrection life. He goes on, so then death is at work in us. Simply put, we're dying, folks. We're all dying. But, says Paul, life is at work in you. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All this is for your benefit so that the grace which is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 10 and following. Next chapter, he says in chapter 5, verse 8, we are confident and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. I'll say it again. Thankful hearts. 
are contented hearts. They're content. Thirdly, thankful hearts can knowingly, can knowingly anticipate future glory. The great goal of God, the great end of God, is to bring glory and honor to himself as, the only, as only God deserves. But inasmuch, however, as we, as our life and my life and yours, are utilized as the means whereby God accomplishes this, God has ordained that we, his people, will share in his glory. The Romans 8 text we read earlier, which told us that God works all things for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, goes on to state God's set purpose and the completion of it. Here it is. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Ooh. He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he uh, not along also with him graciously Give us all things. In humility we could say, well if I have Christ that's enough. It really is. But Paul is saying, well Christ may be enough. But God has determined that along with Christ he's going to give you all things. In verse 18, Paul connects this with adversity, stating this way, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us, for in this hope we were saved. Suffering now, glory later. I think that's Paul's way of saying it isn't always going to be pain and suffering. It isn't always going to be adversity, sorrow, tragedy, deprivation. Ephesians 5.27 tells us that Christ died for his church, his bride. Why? To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present to himself, get it now, a glorious church. NIV says a radiant church. Without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. But holy and blameless. Romans 8, 17. Now if we are children of God, then we are heirs. And heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings. In order that we may also share in his glory. Yeah. Share in his glory. Are you destined to share in the glory of Christ? I pray that's so. It can be so today. When you repent of your sin and turn away from your resentment and hostility. And surrender in faith to Christ. And his lordship over you. He's the one that is to be praised. To be glorified. 
And he will teach you by his grace how to deal with suffering and adversity in a way that the world cannot. And to face a death, the ultimate enemy of your soul, in a way that the world cannot. To be absent from the body and to know I'm present with the Lord mitigates all of the sorrow, the pain, and the suffering. Our Lord, we thank you for your word today. We're thankful for the charge to be thankful in all circumstances, not just the good ones, though things we consider to be good, but to see in the bad things as well that God is working on us in terms of our sanctification. He's weaning us away from our pride and arrogance, and from our materialism, from our greed and covetousness and all things like that that the world just lives for. And he's saying there's help for the weak. There's sustaining from God for the powerless. There's salvation for those that cannot save themselves. And in the future, there's glory. There's glory to come. So, if we live 80, 90 or more years on this earth, what is that? Life of suffering and heartache, what is that compared to the glory that's coming? Paul said, and we read it, we shouldn't even make that kind of comparison. That's a faulty comparison. It's so lopsided as to be irrelevant. But that's because we know Christ. More importantly, Christ knows us. Forgive us for our whining and complaining and griping and worrying and fretting and all the things that come our way because we're not thankful. And help us like Job, even Nebuchadnezzar, the Apostle Paul, and others to be thankful for the bad things you sent into our life. You're working in us to bring glory to yourself and good to us. For everyone this morning, in the sound of my voice, they're just living for other things. They're living for the material things of the world. They are in the griper, complainer category. They're ready to blame God for not doing better in their lives. They could never mouth Job's words when he lost all of his ten children. Lord, bring them, draw them to something greater than themselves, that one being Jesus, that one being the one who gave up of himself that he might forgive us and pay for our sins and bring us close to God. Lord, grant faith where it is not there and repentance where there is a love of sin. For the glory of Jesus and the good of your people, we pray these things. Amen.